You're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone. Today I'm talking to film critic Nick Lowe, author of Mutant Popcorn, about some of the films and some of the things he couldn't fit into his Interzone 295 essay. Hello, Nick Lowe. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for coming back on on Interzone Pod. Um, we're going to be talking about a lot today. We are. Um, uh, we, we've just uh, published, I think, the the longest column I've ever done. Is and it? <laughs> it's going to start with well, mainly because you kept finding extra pages when I thought, can I just squeeze this in and this and this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you said you just nodded yes. Um, nevertheless, <laughs> we're going to start as last time, I think, with some of the stuff that didn't make the cut. Uh, or we're, we're going to come to that fairly uh, fairly quickly. There wasn't room for for everything, and uh, I, we've got lots of other things that we would like to touch on at least along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, so we was start starting off uh, sort of yeah this year is a, a a really big year, right? Yes, I mean it's I, and I think it's kind of snuck past everyone just what an amazing year it has been for SF and fantasy film. Um, people kind of see the Barbenheimer event and they see you know all the superhero films flopping, um, and they don't really see how many extraordinary little things around the edges there have been, particularly not in English actually. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's been an absolute benchmark year. So. I'm trying to think back to the beginning. I mean, it started with Megan, which is possibly the film that has hit its moment most since the lunar sequences in 2001. I mean, they could not have known that it was going to come right in the middle of AI panic. And it would only be a brilliant little film anyway, but it was just the film of this year in science fiction coming true. And that was just, uh, that was before the year had even uh, really uh, got started. We've had one absolute all-time classic in the Spider-Verse sequel, which is just one of those films that melts your eyeballs and uh, feels like, um, uh, as, as the first one did in its day, but the first one actually uh, has been so influential, it seems a bit dated now, but the, but the, the new one is just such an amazing celebration of uh, superhero narrative and animation um, uh, cutting edge art. Uh, and if we just had those two films, it would have been uh, an extraordinary year. But it's also been a year in which Wes Anderson did another SF film, not his best, I think, but uh, certainly uh, you know, as stylish as his previous dabbles in the medium. Uh, we had uh, an amazing bunch of Japanese films. I mean, uh, again, uh, uh, Makoto Shinkai's Suzume uh, would have been film of the year in a weaker year. Um, uh, we had uh, the wonderful live action uh, uh, drama about uh, assisted uh, senior side uh, Plan 75, which I thought was an absolute uh, stunner. Plan 75 is is really interesting. Yeah, I, I re- recommend that one. Wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah, uh, we had, uh, uh, I mean, well, I think possibly my second favourite film of the year, The um, the Five Devils, the French, um, uh, <laughs> how can you put it, eight-year-old time slip witch uh, biracial sapphic 
melodrama centered around hyperosmic <laughs> superpowers. Absolutely stunning film. And all kinds of weird little indie stuff. Uh, the Irish um, Baker-like punk time viewer film Lola, the Chilean magic realist uh, musical The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future, uh, 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 amazing years in the making animated uh, indie Marcel with shell with shoes on, and uh, we're not even halfway down the list of the stuff that we've already covered this year. Um, so it's been amazing, and there's some incredible stuff coming out, and uh, we'll probably get to that uh, later on. Yeah, and and there's and all of that's in this, as you say, this the the longest ever mutant popcorn essay in Interzone two nine five, which you can find at Interzone dot press. I I actually hadn't twigged that it was the very longest, but that does make sense. Well, <laughs> You must have felt it by the time you were finding all those extra pages. It was, it was, yeah, it did feel quite long. Um, I was thinking back to the days when we used to be monthly and there were mm -hmm. nearly so many, you know, there were none of these kind of fantasy franchises. Um, and so sometimes, particularly around this time of year, a month would go by with nothing coming out and you could sort of devote an entire column to a single film. And there were at least uh, 15 films I would have been happy doing that with this year. Um, and they they get three sentences instead. Um, yeah, re a really really good year. And and you, when it was monthly, you you must have been yeah you must have been writing them like back to back, like finishing one, starting the next. Well, that was that was kind of how it worked. Yes, I mean that's that's and and it's still a bit like that, except they all come out in these enormous bursts, and I have to cut most of it. Um, but <laughs> I, I mean, I like. I mean, I, I I do like us being a kind of journal of record and trying to get everything that at least gets a UK theatrical release. And yeah, um, uh, it's. Uh, I, I mean, it's great being in London where you get, uh, for example, a lot of the Chinese stuff uh, that doesn't really travel the country uh, 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 very well, but you get to see it with Chinese audiences. So, um, I mean, one of my most thrilling viewing experiences of the year was The Wandering Earth 2, simply watching that with basically an, a, 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 you know, a big cinema packed to the rafters with Chinese students. Uh, completely different experience from uh, uh, watching a relatively indifferent film, actually. You know, a very interesting film about Chinese heroism on uh, the, 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 well, on, the, on a streamer, as of course most of us watched uh, the original Wandering Earth. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so it's been it's been a really exciting year, and I, and uh, I seem to be seeing more films uh, than ever. But they're so kind of squeezed together that we uh, can't always give them the space that they uh, they, they could yeah, use, and that's why it's lovely to have this pod overspill. We can, yeah, we can, we can catch some of these extra ones. So. Um, so the, fir the first overspill, I think we're, we're, you're going to tell us about the Euro animations, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, this is a category of film that there are there are huge numbers of, um, uh, and uh, they always kind of get squeezed. You know, whenever I'm looking for a film to drop, it's always one of these. Um, uh, there is a phenomenon that doesn't really get much comment on, uh, at least in the UK, where. Um, uh, at weekends and in school holidays, there is an absolute uh, desperate hunger for animation, any animation. And there are all these little studios all over Europe who are churning out content that tends to get only 
10 a.m. screenings on a Sunday morning, um, but is there for months. And uh -huh. uh, there, are, there were films that were constantly on at my local uh, uh, all the way back to the Easter holidays. And I was there, and they're actually, I mean, I try and catch all these, and they are actually re often really interesting films. So uh, I, there were uh, there were a couple that went back, uh, uh, going back to Easter now. Um, the one that actually did seem to have daytime, actual sort of afternoon showings, um, was uh, and 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 actually did have a some kind of publicity campaign. Uh, was Mummies, which uh, you know, actually had trailers that showed before other films, which is very unusual for these. And this was this was a Spanish. Um, uh, animation uh, with a British dub cast that uh, had obviously been made um, by. I mean, it was. It, it comes from a studio that has quite a lot of history behind it. They did the uh, that had the Explorer films. They did Capture the Flag, which is another of these slightly breakout Euro animations that uh, you know occasionally even uh, mixed on TV. Mm -hmm. And Mummies is a very sweet little film that um, uh, is mainly interesting for without I think really quite knowing what it's doing um, for being the mummy from the mummy's point of view. And uh, I haven't seen that done anywhere. I'm sure Kim Newman would be able to think of a, uh, uh, a 70s Italian uh, version that had uh, uh, done something like that. <laughs> but the premise is that underneath the pyramids is an entire necropolis of the mummified dead going about their business um, uh, as they have done for thousands of years. And uh, when... Uh, antiquities, looters, um, uh, traffic, uh, a treasure which happens to have a lot of plot function in it um, from uh, the tomb it's been uh, buried in to, uh, well, the, to the tomb it ends up in uh, by <laughs> a set of events I can't try and summarize. Um, and then uh, uh, they transfer it to a thinly disguised but privately owned British museum. Um, uh, 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 <laughs> Uh, mismatched, um, but obviously destined to be together, uh, mummified couple have to stow away and follow the treasure to London and repatriate it. So it's um, it's about being the mummy, um, but overlaid with the politics of the uh, uh, contemporary uh, antiquities trade and its various problematics, um, uh, but done as a kid's animation and set in this absolutely glorious uh, uh, London, which has been clearly constructed from photo reference. Um, and so uh, lots of it look like very specific angles on particular bits of London, uh, but then they don't quite join up. So there's a whole section along the embankment where they don't do Cleopatra's Needle, bizarrely. Um, but it's an, actually uh, a really interesting film for what it does with a very well-established genre tradition uh, uh, reframed in a highly politicized, in fact, now even more politicized than it was before uh, all the um, alleged uh, British Museum 
uh, thefts. Um, uh, and it's another of these films that has kind of accidentally caught its moment. So that was one I thought was really worth um, uh, being aware of. I don't know whether it's one that uh, people would seek out. I mean, it is, a lot of these mm -hmm. films are very cheaply animated, and this is actually uh, fairly uh, professional, but it's still, you know, it, it's not Pixar um, and not really uh, trying to be. So that was one interesting one. Okay. I was also, again, really from a kind of genre history point of view, uh, very uh, intrigued by um, uh, a uh, French animation from a, a studio in Toulouse, uh, which in English is called uh, Epic Tales, but in French is called Patty and the Wrath of Poseidon, um, uh, which is an, an a cartoon animal sequel to... Harry Hausen's Jason and the Argonauts, um, uh, in which uh, uh, all the Argonauts except Jason are now dead, and uh, we're now uh, uh, in the last generation of the Age of Heroes, and uh, the uh, the only character in the film who still believes in heroes, apart from a truly geriatric Jason who's sort of hobbling around on a walking frame, um, is a little talking mouse called Patty and her friends. Um, and Patty is going to be a hero. And what <laughs> the plot consists of the god Poseidon getting uh, cheesed off uh, their uh, city for not uh, having um, honoured him enough with a statue. Um, and <laughs> they have to go on the last quest of the Argonauts with the elderly Jason and this little mouse who's actually running the show with her um, uh, hydrophobic cat best friend, don't ask. And uh, they animate the Argonauts using the uh, the skeleton animating magic from the original film, and they go off on this quest in which, of course, Jason and the actual, uh, the now zombie Argonauts are completely useless, and it's the animals who are uh, fulfilling all the quests. And again, you know, if you know the history of uh, the films that it's riffing off, I mean, it's an absolutely mad undertaking, mm -hmm. but it's a really interesting new twist that, you know, again, it's only being seen, uh, I think it's Still occasionally plays um, because these things play uh, for months and months and months. Um, uh, it's only being seen by under fives uh, with their child minder on a weekday morning, um, uh, but it deserves to be known about. Um, one that I, uh, I mean, they're, they're getting better as we go. Um, so one that I thought actually really had something, uh, and uh, you just have to bear with me as I describe it, okay. is the Norwegian superhero uh, film uh, Just Super um, about a, a dispraxic um, heir to a superhero dynasty uh, who... Um, serve one little fjord village. They've got their local superhero uh, who, for some reason, still manages to have a secret identity, despite the fact that it's been the same family back uh, for uh, generations. And uh, <laughs> the, the inciting incident of the film is uh, when our heroine um, uh, <laughs> accidentally shrinks the power-giving magic superhero costume that her dad uses to um, uh, 
you know, stop runaway buses and other things that might go on in uh, a, a gorgeously designed uh, fjordland uh, backgrounds. <laughs> uh, uh, there's no crime fighting in this. Uh, crime doesn't really happen in Norway, uh, at least in this world. Um, but she shrinks it in the wash. And so um, she's the only person that will now fit but she is dyspraxic. It's never, I mean, it's never actually said that she's dyspraxic and dyslexic as well, but you, you can kind of see um, uh, very tactfully the way, uh, you know, for example, when she's trying to uh, read a word on the board in school, the letters kind of move around. Um, nobody says dyslexia. Uh, and she's clumsy in very specific kinds of ways. So she, uh, her dad thinks she can't be a superhero. And the role passes uh, to another branch of the family, which proves to be a terrible idea. And then there's a bit of a spoiler coming at the end of this. Yeah, spoilers. And it's kind of the reason for watching it. Um, uh, of course, she saves the day. Um, but she saves the day not by using her superpowers, but by using her own uh, native skills as an ordinary dyspraxic little girl to get the whole community to band together and realize, ah, we can sort out our um, superhero requiring situations without a superhero. We are more powerful. We can retire this generational superhero on which we've depended and just be a self-determining um, Scandinavian um, uh, local community. So it's as though your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is just replaced by his friendly neighborhood. Uh, right. That that sounds like the most the most radical take so far. I think on, a, on a, I mean they they all sound really interesting, but the that one in particular, yeah. Yeah, and um, but I mean, really, I mean the the film I mean, one of the films of the year for me um, uh, that that really kind of transcends this whole genre. And again, it was only really shown at sort of. Uh, uh, early morning screenings, uh, uh, <laughs> and I saw it twice at such screenings, and they were they were thinly attended. Um, but it is it is actually in many ways a landmark film. It's a film called Mavka, which is Ukrainian. Um, and if um, I mean anyone who knows anything about Ukrainian literature, their, their ears are going to prick up at this because uh, this is, I mean, we'll talk about what it means as a uh, as an Aust uh, Ukrainian animation at all, um, uh, but um, it's based on one of the absolute foundational classics of uh, Ukrainian literature. Um, uh, it's subtitled The Forest Song, Mavka, The Forest Song, and The Forest Song is the title of the most famous work by uh, one of the great uh, legends of Ukrainian literature at the turn of the last century. Uh, uh, Lesia Ukrainka is the name that she uh, wrote under, Lesia from uh, Ukraine, a uh, hugely important figure in uh, uh, Ukrainian literature. And mm -hmm. uh, this is her most famous work. And she's been having a moment anyway. Uh, uh, there was uh, an, another um, she had a bicentenary, sorry, a sesquicentenary a couple of years ago, just before the invasion. Um, and uh, there was a big uh, set of events around her work 
uh, in by the Ukrainian community in London under the auspices of the British Library. But then, uh, particularly since the invasion, um, uh, there's been a lot of attention to her stuff. There was a revival, uh, a fantastic production uh, by the great uh, live canon uh, theatre company, Helen Eastman's company, of uh, her play Cassandra, which is the other great sort of contender for her her, her masterpiece. And that uh, uh, was playing in London and uh, touring around uh, the country. But Mavka is something else. Mavka uh, and the play The Forest Song is uh, a, a play that distills, it's quite a late work, um, distills a lot of her ideas about uh, nationhood and folklore. It's a, um, I mean, it's a very, very weird play. And one of the challenges of making an animation about it is to try and translate it all into, as I say, kind of Saturday morning um, animated feature uh, uh, language. So mm -hmm. um, I should say all her plays were really, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a dramatic poem. It's a kind of, uh, it's, it's a, it's a verse play that in some ways is completely unstageable, although after her death, I mean, she's been very widely staged. But uh, uh, so Mavka is originally the, uh, it's a name for a class of forest spirits in northwestern Ukraine and adjacent regions. But the, in the play, it's the name of a character. It's a particular forest spirit who, um, as kind of happens in romantic fantasy narratives at that time, falls for a human musician called Lukash. And she tries to live in the human world to be with him, but she literally can't cut it when she tries to you know, do peasant things like harvest wheat. Um, uh, the wheat goes, sister, don't cut my hair. And so she doesn't have the heart. And so um, her boyfriend, Lukash, very ill-advisedly allows himself to be pushed instead into marrying uh, a young widow called Kalina, who turns out to be a very bad egg. Um, and Mavka in heartbreak returns to the forest and uh, they, things get really weird at this point. She uh, gives herself over to this entity called him who dwells in the rock, who's a kind of dark nothingness in the interior of the earth. But she and Lukash are still drawn to one another and she re-emerges in the third act, which is very, very strange indeed, as a kind of ghostly diminished revenant. And the two, two of them uh, choose to perish together in a snowdrift and are absorbed into the forest. Um, and that's just some of the stuff that, that's just the main plot. But I mean, uh, there is other weird stuff going on in the background with supporting characters and indeed between the acts. I mean, uh, between acts two and three, Lukash is turned into a werewolf and cured. Um, and the mention is just made of this as something that's happened while you were off getting your ice creams in the break. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, obviously, this this is not a kid's animation. So what they've done in the film is kind of trace over the lines of it um, using uh, what is basically a kind of set of vintage SF tropes that have become part of the grammar of fantasy film and enable what is still basically the same story to speak to a world that it couldn't have imagined um, just by kind of translating it into a more modern narrative grammar. And its big, it, it, it's big idea is to make it a fusion of, uh, to, to turn this plot into a fusion of Fern Gully uh, or possibly Avatar actually, because there's a home tree in it, but uh, that plot and Dark Phoenix. Um, so uh, 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 in this version, uh, the villainess Kalina is the 
heiress to a local sawmill, um, which attempted to um, uh, commercialize the uh, and exploit the forest and destroy uh, the local culture by um, uh, bulldozing it all for um, for timber. And uh, so it's uh, it's very much about uh, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in the film which is very much not in uh, the play about technology encroaching on the wilderness. And it is very avatary actually. But Mavka and her transformation uh, in the final act now becomes uh, a journey from being this uh, actually utterly wet and initially uh, completely uh, unappealing uh, little um, waif-like uh, forest, um, uh, green-haired uh, forest sprite uh, uh, who uh, whose body does not seem to obey the laws of gravity as often happens in rather um, uh, budget-strapped animation um, into this, into dark Mavka who takes on the power to defeat the human um, uh, enemy of the forest, um, but uh, at a terrible cost. And it's, you know, these, are, it's a, these are very familiar story types, which are simply telling what is essentially the same arc in a more familiar way that makes sense to the kind of audience it's going for. And of course, this is a film that was in production long before uh, even the pandemic, um, let alone the invasion. And so you know, it was completed. Uh, the last really third of the production uh, happened after, uh, it happened post-invasion. And uh, it was released into cinemas in Ukraine uh, while they were under threat of bombing and half of them were closed, but nevertheless became the the biggest animation, I think possibly by now the biggest film in Ukrainian history. And it really is, I mean, it, it's really got something, um, uh, despite having a rather ropey English script, at least. I haven't seen the Ukrainian dub yet. Um, and the, you know, the, 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 the human and humanoid character animation isn't all that great, but the designs and the creature animation, the forest uh, beasties are fantastic. And uh -huh. the landscapes have a kind of almost pioneer America, Thomas Cole kind of magic hour look to them. And there are all these wacky woodland magical fauna. And uh, wonderfully, they've got all the uh, Ukrainian uh, cultural history uh, police to advise them on it. So it's got obsessively authentic peasant costumes and folk art, which gives oh, what wow. is otherwise like generic animation, a really striking and distinctive look. And the soundtrack is this weird mixture of Ukrainian folk music with generic montage pop. Really strange, like nothing else you've ever seen. Um, uh, but uh, well worth checking out. It's really touched a chord with the Ukrainians, but I think it actually has a much wider reach. And and this is, I think you mentioned this is coming out um the 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 original ukrainian dub is coming out on dvd or blu-ray yes well there was the, the dvd i think was supposed to have come out this week um and uh -huh. I, I think it's got the ukrainian uh soundtrack on it um mm -hmm. uh, and it may stream um uh, i i would really love to see the ukrainian dub i'm sure it will be much better than the uh the, the us dub which is uh has been done by 
Um, it, it had the kind of dialogue punch up that a lot of these have, actually by by the same guy as does a lot of uh, uh, dub punch up for US releases on European animations. But I think it's going to sound much better in the original. Um, but I haven't seen it subtitled yet. Mm, that sounds really incredible. Uh, it, it, it was being produced you said you said before the pandemic even yes it's been is it like a very established sort of company or no it's a i mean they're, they're, well uh, ukraine as you know is full of of, of tech geniuses basically um mm-hmm. uh, all these little software houses and they do have uh, there's a lot of animation talent there and uh, it's been in production for i think you know since uh, possibly the early teens, I mean, uh, uh, sort of the best part of a decade. Um, uh, and it was really a big kind of national cultural project. I don't know actually how, you know, how the uh, production originally came together, but part of the plan is to build an entire Mavcaverse around it. So there is now a TV series in production uh, that I think is a prequel series about Mavka's earlier adventures as uh, this uh, forest spirit before uh, the <laughs> before industrialization uh, comes. And uh, the, the, the subtitle "The Forest Song" is an indication, I think, that there will be other kinds of Mavka films. Um, they're, they're, I know they're intending to have spin-offs in other media as well. So this could be the great Ukrainian national franchise. Wow! I hope so because it's great, actually. Okay, so well, um, can we just go through the titles of those for people who might have missed them? So the the first one was was mummies. Uh, yes, the first one. Uh, uh, what <laughs> mummies? Yes, uh, easy to remember. Um, it does sound like a sequel to the mummy, doesn't it? I mean, it's like <laughs> Alien and Aliens. You have mummy, yeah, the mummy, and then mummies. Um, uh, the uh, the second one was Epic Tales with an I, I should have said. So T-A-I-L-S, because mice and oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Terrible English title. Uh, the original was uh, Patty et la, et la Colère de Poseidon. Um, or the Patty and the Wrath of Poseidon. Uh, then there was Just Super, which I think is actually also the Norwegian title, bizarrely. Um, or, or I don't know whether they call it Just Super. Um, and then that was Mavka, the Forest Song, the Ukrainian one that I got so excited about. That's awesome. Yeah, loads of really great things there. Um... And we haven't even got onto the, I wouldn't say the best film of the year, but certainly my favourite by an absolute country mile from uh, what has been a benchmark year uh, so far, which, shall I just go straight into it? Shall I just talk about it? It's the last one uh, I wrote up in the uh, in the most recent column, but it's really the tip of a gigantic iceberg. Yeah, I think so. I think, I, I think this... Yeah, this will be a this will be a lot of a lot of interest, I think, to a lot of people. So this is someday or one day, which uh, the the film is the sequel come multiversal replay. It's a, a really a new kind of narrative invention of a, a beloved 2019 Taiwanese TV series, uh, and uh, the film. Um, is uh, both uh, tying up the loose ends from the end and, and actually the cliffhanger in a way from the end of the TV series and replaying the entire plot of the TV series in the space of a single film. And it, I, I, there's a lot to be said for watching the film first because it is the most 
baffling experience in fantasy cinema since primer you have no idea what's going on <laughs> um, but you just know this is wonderful and then if you go off and watch the taiwanese series um uh you have some sense of the rules and what some of these references are but I, in a way i kind of like the uh, and it becomes a much a, a very rich film uh in new ways while still being utterly uh, baffling but it's become topical because the original series has uh, just this week um dropped as a career in a, the form of a korean remake on netflix called a time called you and though the korean version which is actually not bad in its own right it's about 30 percent as good as the original taiwanese version um but uh, you know that seems to be the version that's going around the world and i although the taiwanese one is much harder to find uh, the original series is kind of the beating heart of what I think is going to become, uh, well, you suggested this before we were uh, talking, it's going to become the new life on Mars that everyone remakes in their own kind of national uh, uh, tra traditions. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the premise is that our uh, heroine is uh, a 20-something uh, career girl uh, working for some kind of tech start startup in uh, Taipei, um, who has recently lost her boyfriend in a terrible and somewhat mysterious uh, plane crash, and she she uh, receives a mystery parcel of a vintage 1990s style uh, cassette. Uh, player uh, with an absolute banger of a 90s Taiwanese hit by Wu Bai called Last Dance. And when she plays this, um, it enables her to time slip back to 1997 or 8, I forget, uh, in the original, um, uh, where she inhabits the body of a different uh, girl, um, slightly older than her, a few years older than her, in high school, who is played by the same actress and who is, who is an absolute look-alike. And one of her classmates is an absolute ringer for the dead boyfriend. And over the course of 16 hours because it's it's 13 72 minute episodes in the original it's quite it's it's, it's uh, uh, there's a lot of narratives uh, space there um uh, the relationship between these two seemingly different characters in the past uh in this high school which has all kinds of love triangles and uh, uh, a kind of double murder mystery going on in it and the events in the present day and everything that's happened in between gradually assemble into a cross time uh, story of um, uh, lost love and attempts to change the future with some absolutely majestic twists in it along the way. And the, uh, the uh, production values are glorious.
kind of 80s Australian soap. Um, it's just wonderful. But the um, uh, but it is actually very, very satisfying. And it gets to a point at the end, which leaves it open to a sequel. And the sequel is the, the film, which has a lot more budget and is, is capable of digital effects, so they can do some of the things that the original couldn't really do, like have the same actor do scenes with themselves. But it also, um, because, I mean, the one, the one small spoiler here is... But it also, because, I mean, the one, the one small spoiler here is that at the end of the um the, the original series uh where the, the main plot is about the um the heroine from the future trying to stop the uh the, the girl whose body she's inhabiting in the past from being murdered at the end of the series um and what happens at the end is that the timeline is reset and all the surviving characters memories of what happened to them uh, in the time slip plot have been obliviated and so they're kind of starting over in the present day and uh what happens in the film is that they they timed slip by the same mechanism i mean the history repeats itself um we have the same kind of starting point but they are time slipping over a briefer period but with more iterations and with yet more twists and that's where it becomes primer like and you think wait a minute who exactly is this character in this body uh now <laughs> and uh, uh is the character they're talking to played by the same actress the um uh, the, the the version that we think it is or a different version and mm -hmm. if you've watched the series you can kind of follow it because you you know these characters in their their different lives and their different iterations but there's a joy in watching it if you haven't a clue what's going on um and it does it does stick the landing it does uh, a bit, a bit of fans of the original series have been a bit uh, sniffy, I think, about the, the film. But actually, it does wrap it up extremely well and it finds ways of using it's got some Chinese money um, uh, uh, in it. So there's some uh, action in Shanghai and uh, it uses the greater resources to uh, take it to places the original series couldn't go. So if, particularly if, you, if you're watching the Korean version, um, the original has a, a much more charismatic cast. I mean, the Korean cast are good, but the the original is cheaper, but much more engaging and much less maudlin. One of the things I don't like about the earlier episodes of the Korean version is that it's rather um, uh, rather sobby, particularly in the um, uh, the, the more intendedly heart wringing episodes. Whereas the lightness of touch in the original, I think, is uh, is preserved uh, in the film. Yeah. And and in the original, the 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 kind of contrast between that kind of lightness of touch and that kind of soap operatic sort of aesthetic at times, the there's that, and then you have those those moments of really kind of high drama or where the, or where the kind of twists come in, and then there is a sort of there's a real magic to how they've pulled it off because it could have it it could so easily not have have worked. I think that that kind of just having those together but it really does it's if people can find it it's um yeah it's a really interesting show and definitely uses the time i mean it's it's long as you say but it it, it does so much in that in in, in that kind of uh, what, what did you say it was 13 or 16 hours 
Uh, well, it's, uh, it's uh, 13 episodes of 72 minutes. And um, uh, one of the great things about it is that the twists are all the way through. It's not as if it kind of runs out of them. In fact, the, the, there is a really big and really dark turn in the penultimate episode. Uh, you think uh, th th there's a, I mean, again, this isn't really a spoiler, but they uh, they catch and stop uh, the, the, the murderer, um, which is actually a fantastic plot in the anti-penultimate episode. And you think, well, how on earth are they now going to find material for two further episodes? And then something happens, which is obviously what they were planning all along, that just lifts it uh, in ways that you did not see coming. And it turns out all along to have been about something else uh, than you were thinking it had in its bag and and is is the is the film version your your film of the year so far well yeah i mean it is for me it's just been i mean i i can't stop watching it uh, mainly because <laughs> i keep i can't stop trying to figure out what's going on in it uh, uh, there are there are moments in it where i'm still not sure I, I you can understand them at the time but then five minutes later you think hang on what 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 happened there mm -hmm. um, and there is one particularly gorgeous twist about three quarters of the way through where you think oh this is what you know, it was worth all the hours that have led up to this uh just for this one moment and so i i i i just think it's it's uh, a joy um, to experience. Mike's trying to decipher baffling science fictional narratives. Uh, they're in for a treat, and it is really doing something new. This the, the combination of uh, body hopping and uh, a, a time slipping um, with a mystery about identity over time yeah. uh, is really, really clever. And having a sequel, which is both a sequel that the characters don't know is a sequel, but also a kind of alternate iteration. And when watching the Korean version, you couldn't help thinking, oh, yes, this is just another branch of the multiverse. This story is happening in lots of different uh, places in, uh, and tracing uh, rather, rather like uh, in Spider-Verse. These are the canon events and it's tracing the same kind of arc, uh, in, but with cultural differences. So uh, the Korean version uh, has some very striking new and, and some uh, cases improved touches that weren't available in Taiwanese culture. Right. I, I hope it gets picked up by by, by more by more kind of production teams in different places is what well. it has such a strong core to it such a strong narrative core and i can definitely see how you could layer you could just sort of layer so much you could localize it in so many different ways yeah 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 someday or one day um so so there's so so that's that's everything we couldn't i mean i think that's everything you couldn't fit into the fit into the into the, into the mutant popcorn um or, or was there more uh maybe i'm missing something well, well that's that was kind of it by then i mean there are a few things that came along too late uh, too late to to write up that i expect they'll be in the uh in the next uh, issue which is going to be uh full of good stuff actually um i was uh, you know we, we've been saying it's uh it's been something of a vintage year, but and, and despite the strike, uh, despite the fact that uh, many uh, key titles have been pulled from the calendar, Sony have kicked um, most of their stuff uh, to next year. Uh, Warners have been 
uh, pushing stuff back. You know, we were all thinking uh, 2023 is going to be the the year of Dune Part Two, and everything else can just sort of go off. Uh, 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 might as well go home. Um, but mm. uh, uh, and, and you know, some of the things that I've been uh, most looking forward to uh, have been pushed to next year. Poor Things is obviously one of the films that uh, very vexingly uh, everyone now loves. And so they need to get Emma Stone on a red carpet uh, at the end of the year um, for the Oscar push. And it's not coming out in the UK till uh, till, till January now. Um, but it is playing the, uh, the festival circuit. And a lot of these uh, releases over the coming months are things that have been touring the festival. So um, uh, as well as Poor Things, which uh, is playing at the London Film Festival, that's where I'll be seeing it. Um, uh, for, for, for those who haven't, who's, who've been living under a rock, this is the... Um, this is the adaptation of, I think, Alistair Gray's second greatest novel, um, uh, uh, in, very much endorsed by Gray himself, though sadly he didn't live to uh, uh, to see it, and uh, uh, is clear, you know, has been the big hit of the festival circuit uh, so far. From Yorgos Lanthimos, of all people, um, who not that long ago was doing these films that deliberately adopted a kind of deadpan, anti-naturalistic form of dialogue because he couldn't direct English-speaking actors. And then the favourite happened and uh, he seems to have got past all that. So that looks like it's going to be amazing. Um, I'm seeing that the same day as the Miyazaki. Um, Which you you got tickets for, right? There was a little bit of a queuing headache over that one. yeah it was it was um it was a bit hairy because I, I i i had that in a dozen other films in my basket and then basket crashed but uh yeah so um that will be uh i mean again you know a great destination film for everyone uh in um uh, in our kind of a world uh there's i mean there's some amazing stuff there's um, the French film The Beast, which is uh, Henry James Goes SF. I'm not sure I can summarize it anymore. Another uh, film that's been big on the festival circuit is The uh, the End We Start From, the adaptation of the post-apocalyptic, you know, a flooded Britain novel by Megan Hunter from 2018 or so. Uh, Jodie Comer has been getting a lot of uh, attention for her lead performance there. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, Molly and Max in the future, which um, I, I, I deliberately uh, looked up the, uh, this is the London Film Festival summary uh, of the plot. Um, uh, after a half fishman collides with a crystal harvester's spaceship, their on-off relationship spans multiple years, dimensions and planets in this lo-fi sci-fi rom-com. Um, doesn't that make you want to just drop everything and see that right now? Y- yes. Um, uh, so the, 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 there are those and many other uh, extraordinary things just uh, coming up in the festival circuit. But there are also some really interesting things coming up um, uh, in the scheduled uh, releases. Uh, we've got, um, I mean, I, I, I'm looking forward particularly to the uh, to Foe, which is the adaptation of the Ian Reid novel uh, with this uh, very kind of awards baity looking cast of Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal. Um, we've, uh, Disney haven't been pulling stuff, so we've still got the Marvels, which actually, I mean, I'm 
cautiously looking forward to, um, uh, even though it's got roots in the Marvel uh, uh, um, TV uh, shows. Um, it, uh, it looks like they've actually got a new superhero idea, this idea of them all kind of swapping places when they use their powers. That seems to be a very cinematic, uh, a very specifically cinematic superhero idea that we haven't seen before. Um, there's uh, the Disney animation Wish uh, which could be wonderful, could be terrible. Um, we've got Gareth Edwards returning uh, with uh, the original um, uh, feature, The Creator, which um, looks very, very ambitious and very gorgeous as uh, all these things do. There's a new Dr. Jekyll I don't know very much about. There's the Hunger Games prequel. Uh, there's... Um, there's a Trolls film and there's an Aquaman film. There's, 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 there's a lot coming up um, before the end of the year. And then presumably it will all dry up uh, in 2024, um, except for stuff that's already in the bank, which is mostly and rather uh, dispiritingly heavy, uh, in fact, heavy to uh, sort of black hole, uh, uh, all matter swallowing um, uh, with... With, with franchise installments, um, uh, just looking ahead at the release calendar for 2024, stuff that actually is inked in, uh, we've got, okay, we've got Furiosa, which everyone's looking forward to. Um, uh, but strictly speaking, you know, it's a Fury Road uh, prequel. Um, we've got prequel to uh, A Quiet Place coming up. We've got new Alien, Planet of the Apes, Ghostbusters, Godzilla and Kong, Despicable Me. There's even a new Kung Fu Panda. I thought they'd stop making those, but this is DreamWorks. They have to keep dropping a feature uh, now and again to keep their their animated streaming series um, uh, alive. Uh, we've got uh, Beetlejuice 2, of course, um, Inside Out 2, uh, Dune Part 2, still, um, <laughs> uh, uh, still inked in for March. Um, uh, so the second halves of things, the uh, second half of the Mission Impossible, uh, supposedly coming out still uh, next year. Uh, still more superhero stuff. Uh, Sony are still cranking out their um, uh, minor spider villains uh, uh, vehicles with Craven uh, the Hunter, which got postponed, but they've also got Madden Web coming out. Uh, and Marvel are doing their Deadpool 3, which I, th I think was almost finished before the strike. And they've got another Captain America with another Captain America. Uh, Disney have their live action Snow White. Uh, it's it's going to be heaving with this stuff and some of them might be quite good who knows um but i hope there'll be a space for original stuff uh, around the margins yeah was, i hope they the strike hasn't killed uh all the interesting films that uh, uh would uh have otherwise been the um the meat in this uh, franchise uh, mega sandwich um, in many layers yeah i mean do, do you think that it's going to give space for more for sort of smaller companies, smaller studios too, who have, you know, agreed to the terms. Well, that's right. I mean, A24 did a kind of blanket, uh, 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 what's the word, waiver deal. Um, uh, right. Uh, and so production is going ahead on on everything there's, I think. Um, and, I mean, it may all get resolved. Um one doesn't like to use the words it may all be over by christmas um but it's <laughs> uh i mean everyone wants it to be and it's just so absurd that the studios are um 
uh, effectively denying economic reason um, in uh, stonewalling as long as they have done. It may collapse very, very quickly, or it may drag on into 2024, which would be a terrible thing. But when I look back, when you look back at this year, uh, actually, most of the really interesting stuff has not been the stuff that would have been affected by the strike had it been happening in 2021, uh, 22. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it would have taken out Barbie and Oppenheimer, but this would still have been a great year uh, without them. And uh, a lot of the really interesting things have been uh, either little indies or uh, uh, non-English uh, features or, um, or very often both. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned earlier was the the, the, the two-part Mission Impossible where where the AI becomes sort of so central to the plot and, you know, Megan being, you know, really sort of of the moment. Where do you see the whole, the whole situation with, you know, AI and the films going forward? Well, it's going to be, I mean, nobody knows how easy it's going. To, well, I mean, there, there, are two, there are two dimensions to this. Obviously, uh, 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 the way in which film talks about AI is changing all the time. And Me- Megan and Mission Impossible were very responsive for different reasons. Mission Impossible, because they make up the script as they go. And so they originally had a human villain where the AI now is, and they, they, they wrote him out and put an AI. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the uh, S.I. Morales character, but there was a, there was a human character above him who has now been written out of the film in favor of this thing called the entity because uh, Macquarie saw that would be a cool thing to come out um, in whatever year it was originally going to come out in Um, but the um, uh, and and Megan I think just caught its moment because it's got a very very smart writer um, uh, Akila Cooper who uh, really did her homework and saw what the emerging issues would be and she's I'm, I'm very Pleased to see she's been retained for the sequel because I mean I think she was the uh, she and uh, the, uh, the 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 director's choice to use mainly practical effects and some of the tricks they they did with that um, they were the absolute making of it um, but the, the of course the thing that everyone is worried about is the way that AI is changing the making of film itself and uh, the, uh, the the thing we really um can't i mean i certainly can't see an obvious way uh, uh through is how one drafts a contract in 2023 that will cover the ways in which both the sort of construction of moving images um and the, indeed the you know the actors voices that go with them and the production even of more conventional underpinnings like uh script and dialogue um uh, will develop over the years that contract has to cover because things are moving so fast there was such a kind of gold rush on and uh every month uh the picture looks completely different um uh you know it's really only in the last uh, few weeks that we've had really clear cases of uh, celebrities' voices being pirated and put to malevolent uses in exactly the ways, of course, that we were um, that everyone was warning was going to happen. And this (laughs) is going to happen presumably on a much uh, greater scale. And it just makes you just feel like 
um, uh, <laughs> as usual, uh, you're uh, you're a, an SF reader who has been saying all your life this this stuff is coming, and suddenly it's arrived, and everyone thinks uh, bloody hell, why didn't nobody tell us it was coming? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not quite R U R yet. Um, because uh, amongst other things, because uh, the um, or, or um, uh, the metropolis, you know, we can't break the machines because the machines are unbreakable. Um, we, uh, it's really, really hard to see how it's going to go. But uh, but we need at least robust negotiations negotiations around this now. Otherwise, it is going to be the wild west and. Um, uh, the ability of actual talent to make films is going to go down the toilet. The encouraging thing, I suppose, is that people still kind of like the human stuff. Um, they, there, there has been this big reaction, and it rather blindsided Marvel, who'd been so dependent on it, um, against uh, obviously digitally created worlds and uh, uh, the Marvel house style, which of course was all managed by the same teams, um, mostly run by Victoria Alonso, who's now been sacked for uh, still rather cryptic reasons. Uh, they, they, they had developed a particular look, which has suddenly um, become a turnoff to audiences. And this is why films like Megan and uh, what would be another good example this year of something that's been very kind of, uh, well, I suppose actually um, things like Barbie. Um, Barbie has, uh, uh, and Oppenheimer, very practical based uh, films. There's still lots of digital stuff in there, but um, uh, no kind of digitally created uh, sets, for example. Um, that uh, that seems to be at the moment a bit of a kind of uh, a deal breaker. And so audiences are, are, are really enjoying living in a physical world again, I think. And that may last or it may not. I mean, we may just get more sophisticated um, AI produced uh, sets. I'm, you know, I'm completely here for that as well, um, as long as there's still a job for human actors and writers and uh, people who look through cameras at uh, uh, real things and register an image on uh, some recording medium. Yeah. I, I mean, and going back to Megan again, I mean, it, I mean, that seems to be such a great model for, for integrating different things. The, 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 the DVD special feature where you could see the, I think they had like two or three remote controls running simultaneously or, you know, three different people doing, you know, micro expressions on the, on the, on the sort of the animatronic. Yeah. Uh, and That's and right, just, yes. um, yeah, to yeah. have all of that running to, you know, to have that kind of, and, and you really do fit in, in the film, it does come over. So you know, it does make such a difference. Um, and then also to have the other layers on top. So, you know, we don't want to have no AI stuff because there's, you know, there's, there's, there's loads of potential for things like procedurally generated sets or, you know, if you've got like, you know, long TV shows, or if you have got people who are making things on a, on a low budget, but yeah, at the same time, yeah. Human beings, human eyes. Could be great in the world of animation. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a great toolkit for people who have the, uh, the talent for, uh, making extraordinary art come alive um uh, i don't see it as the enemy of animation at all the first spider-verse as well uh, sorry to butt in that uh, did, didn't the first spider-verse a lot of the facial expressions i think were 
were kind of general that could be i i, I they yes, were I generated via via some sort of training model i feel like i read somewhere that there was there were elements of that 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 kind of in combination with obviously a huge amount of human input allowed them to have that really wide range of sort of expressions on the on the on the on the characters Although, if you go back and look at it now, the the facial expressions are one of the weakest things about it. It doesn't uh, it doesn't look like it was made. I mean, it certainly doesn't look like it was made today. Um, uh, they they look like Sims. It's <laughs> uh, it's a real shock because it didn't feel like that at the time. Uh, no, it, no, it, at the time it, it, it was at the time absolutely. it was really really something else. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, um, a lot of it was just. Uh, uh really uh, a lot of it was much more traditional than than i remembered it being and it's really that last bit where the kingpin's collider goes off and it just goes multiverse crazy and the visuals explode and then of course you know the the sequel is all like that right from the opening the incredible opening sequence um and uh you can see the influence of the original spider-verse in for example the uh the the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, film, which is very much like the New York stuff, uh, the, the more naturalistic, very painterly stuff from the first Spider-Verse, but with that kind of hip grammar of the the, the, the cuts and the angles and the uh, the, the, the performances um, uh, kind of talking over one another. I mean, all, all that stuff is clearly seeded by uh, uh, the, the, the original Spider-Verse, but of course the Spider-Verse has now uh, moved on to uh, set a new benchmark that everyone's thinking, oh God, how do we beat that? Yeah, where do you... I, 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 another quick follow-up, you mentioned that kind of audiences seem to have gone off that house style that, you know, they, they sort of, you know, spent a lot of time developing it and now now it's not the thing. And I, I it does feel to me that the, the the technology is changing really fast. And, you know, with things like, I was talking to a writer about, about AI art on, oh, sorry, AI generated, you know, yeah, yeah. images that are, are inverted commas art on book covers. And, and I feel like audiences and readers are becoming really savvy to spotting things faster. So on the one hand, you know, the, the yes, this stuff is becoming cheaper and faster to produce. But I do think that the audiences do notice it fairly quickly and it does start to become very homogenous very fast. And so that's right. And we, we, we and I think our, our AI DAR is, is, is AI DAR, training yeah. itself on AI on AI text, uh, at least as fast as AI is finding a quality text to train itself on. So, you know, they've, sure. they, they may have pirated the entire works of George R. R. Martin and Stephen King uh, 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 to produce uh, pastiches of George R. R. Martin and Stephen King. Um, uh, and I hope they get the arses sued off them successfully uh, uh, for it. But a lot of the time, um, we are, without necessarily realizing, get ahead of it. And we, we kind of spot this AI text. You know, we, we, as soon as an AI bot appears in an online forum, everybody piles on and says, ha, 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 you're an AI. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I, I don't think this is the apocalypse at all. Uh, it's an exciting time to be living through. And it's difficult to see what the end game is going to look like. It's going kind to of, be difficult to see what uh, the, the stable state that emerges from this great transformation uh, will look like but we are i think tuning in quite well and and we're fi we're finding ourselves rapidly losing patience 
with the kind of homogenized uh, robot pabulum that uh, seems to be uh, the best that's coming. I mean, there, there, there are people who are saying, uh, there was a, a piece by Simon Rich in the New Yorker a month or two back uh, saying that uh, if you know people in the business uh, uh, and you're a writer, you know your, your career is going to be over in five years' time, which might be true. Um, uh, it's a wonderful piece where it, it makes up onion headlines and they're as good as real onion headlines. Um, and you think, well, you know, I, I, if I couldn't do better than this, why am I still um uh in this gig but uh maybe by the time uh that particular llm comes uh on stream we'll be able to um we'll be able to tell the difference between ai onion headlines and real onion headlines yeah yeah well i, I i've trained my, my brain on mutant popcorn written by a human nick Lowe. so if anyone ever tries to ai generate a mutant popcorn i uh, i hope my ai dar is good enough to um to be able to it's probably really easy to do um <laughs> uh, particularly now that it's uh, you know it's it's all there um uh, uh either already or imminently online and so it can be uh. scraped um yeah you, you can sack me now um and no no no, no, the, no. The bot to uh to review dune part two um, oh goodness me! I, 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 I mean, five. Yeah, losing their jobs after five years. I, I think, I think there's, as you mentioned with the contracts, there needs to be that delineation between the the, the things that an AI could do very well. I mean, I, I, I had a student. I have a student who was talking about writing. Uh, software specifications and sort of you know mm, sort of yeah. quite quite technical documents that that were really boring and really tedious to produce but where you know with with the right sort of the right training you could sort of generate things and then have you know have them checked and have them sort of done and i i do I, yeah i mean I, you want it to reduce the kind of boring labor so that we have more time to do the good stuff yeah uh it's it's the it's, yeah yeah but you have also have to be able to tell whether the uh the system is doing the good stuff correctly doing. so we still need to police it yeah, we do. We're gonna need need, need humans. Um, th thank you, thank you very much for for coming on again to, uh, on onto Interzone Pod. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you can uh, listeners, you can find uh, you can find the latest mutant popcorn in Interzone two hundred and ninety five available at Interzone Press, and uh, I can't wait to read the next one to Interzone Mutant Popcorn in uh, two hundred and ninety six. Can't wait to. I was going to say, can't wait to write it. That uh, some of it's already written. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll see what else comes out. Yeah, yeah. But I think the ne the next couple of weeks are gonna. Uh, I'm going to be seeing a lot of really, really cool stuff. Oh, that's great. Th thanks again, Nick. Have a have a great time. Have a great day. You've been listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly, and today my guest was the film critic Nick Lowe. You can find out more about Interzone at interzone.press and read stories and reviews for free at interzone.digital. Thanks for listening. See you next time.